0: If you are a fan of the Dive Bar Rockstar podcast and would like to help support the show, there's a great way that you can do that and start a new fashion trend. We have a new merchandise page on the website which features t-shirts and hoodies that are available for sale on Amazon. Just click on merchandise in the top menu and all of the links will be there or go directly to divebarrockstar.com slash merchandise. Get started early on your Christmas shopping at divebarrockstar.com. Welcome to the Dive Bar Rockstar Podcast, a show exploring the lives of professional musicians of all types, touring musicians, recording artists, songwriters, engineers, bar bands, wedding bands, and anyone making their living in the music industry. Whether you've dreamed of being a professional or you already are one, this is the podcast for you. I'm your host, Eric Baines, and I hope that you not only find some entertainment here, but also some helpful tips, trade secrets, and ideas that will help you achieve your dreams. It's the week of Thanksgiving, 2020, and of course the coronavirus is on attack, worse than it's ever been. And uh, you know, I know it's different in different places. Uh, I happen to live in Los Angeles, which we have the most cases right now, but we're also the biggest county in all of the U.S. and bigger than a lot of other parts of the world as well. So um, it's 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 tricky. But uh, And it's also hard to make the decision between seeing family and and trying to avoid this disease that's been confusing at best, you know, to figure out. But I hope everybody stays healthy and safe and has an awesome holiday because I do think there's still quite a bit to be thankful for and things could always get worse. So, you know, it's it's the season of, of gratitude and that's never a bad thing. But there's a new documentary coming out. And for those of you that know me personally, I call myself a documentary junkie because I just, I love them. So I'm excited. And the documentary is about Frank Zappa. comes out this week. So we are going to call this Franksgiving. I stole that from my guest, but I, I, I think it's awesome. My guest today has been the vault meister quote-unquote, for the Frank Zappa vault for many, many years. And he's helped to put together the soundtrack for this movie which was written and directed by Alex Winter, who you may know as Bill from the Bill and Ted movies. <laughs> I've only seen the trailer, but it looks incredible. Uh, so I'll put a link in the show notes to the trailer and you can find the movie on demand. And uh, like maybe in the theaters if there's still theaters open in your area. My guest is also an incredible drummer who has played with so many great people like Dweezil Zappa, Ahmet Zappa, Duran Duran, Joe Satriani, Missing Persons, The Motels, Steve Vai, and a band that I played with called Waiting for Monday that you've probably heard a lot about on the show. Uh, Just to name a few. And he's a great guy with a great story. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Joe Travers. Much of your career has revolved around, obviously, the music of Frank Zappa. Yes. And I was wondering, like, how did you get to that music? When did you first hear that music? And what happened to you that you decided to kind of dedicate your entire life and career, you know, in a way to, uh, to Frank Zappa and his music?
1: Well, it started uh, when I was 10 years old in like 1979. Yeah, I was 10 in 1979. And my main source of like music exposure around that time was my family so i had a i had an uncle who was 10 years older than me who was my father's brother and he was you know if i was um 10 he was 20 and also my mom and dad were you know listening to music a lot and stuff my dad was a drummer and he was playing music so i was getting exposed to a lot of different stuff at a very very early age right Mm -hmm. and my uncle uh well basically it was like this i i was hanging out at a friend's a uh, friend's place and and his name was richie and he had an older brother and his older brother used to play uh college radio and it was like a saturday afternoon and i remember we were just hanging out at the house and and he had the college radio going Now, college radio in, in erie pennsylvania was the station that would allow for like album tracks you know it wasn't like the regular pop am stuff that you would normally hear right so and uh the song city of tiny lights came on from the album shake your booty and when it came on i just remember just stopping everything and walking over to the stereo and just listening going like wow what this is interesting what the hell is this you know Mm -hmm. and then the dj said um that was frank zappa with city of tiny lights uh from from the new album shake your booty you know and i was like frank zappa i'd never i'd never heard of him you know so I went back to my uncle, who, like I told you, was the main source of my you know, musical exposure at that time. And I said, who's Frank Zappa? You know, I'd never, I heard the song. It was pretty cool. Who's Frank Zappa? And, um, and he, at, at first he was like, oh, that's just a guy who likes to yell at his audience. <laughs> 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 Which is hilarious. But uh, Gary, Gary ended up getting that record, Shake Your Booty. And when I heard that, I mean, I don't know if you're familiar with that record, uh, but you know, when you're ten years old and, and you hear songs like Bobby Brown and Broken Hearts are for assholes and your mama and stuff like that, the humor and the words and stuff would just like it was a full on mind blower. And me being a drummer at such an early age, I knew, even though it was like way above my head, you know, I knew that the music was special. I just I just knew it at that young age, right? Mm -hmm. so my curiosity just went crazy and as i got older i just uh really wanted to just learn more about about him and just about his music and the more that i kept getting the records and and stuff the more that i just kept falling in love with it like the world of frank was just like such a it was like a world that was just sucking me in and And one of the things too that was um, challenging at that point, this would have been like the early '80s, like like 1981, '82, around there and stuff. And most of his records were out of print. You couldn't get them; they were rare, you know. Especially the '60s stuff, you know. There was no way you could get that shit. So the only way that you could get it is if you like ran across a sealed copy that had been sitting in a record store forever, or you got them used, right? So so uh it was a challenge for me to collect the records because it that made it even more mystifying for me like I want this stuff so bad and I can't get it right <laughs> and there was no internet <laughs> <laughs> so so that made it even more like you know like a thing where I just wanted to just start getting into it so I literally fell fell in love and I mean simultaneously I was discovering so much other music too right but Frank just kept on being that guy that kept uh just grabbing grabbing my attention and i I just kind of I just kind of fell into it, man you know i just I just kept falling in love with everything that I heard and then when there's a when, when you look at the catalog and you're like, holy shit at that time it was like there's like fifty records yeah you know? and you're like you're like, holy shit, there's fifty records I could check out of this guy that's like that's like a lifetime of listening. You know? <laughs> I better get moving.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't even imagine, you know, this, the time that it would take to make one song on one of those records. And then you've got 50, I think it's 56 records altogether.
1: Um, well, now we're at 120 or something like that. It's, it's unbelievable wow. the amount of releases uh, that we have. But when he, by the time that he had passed, he was in the 60s. He had like 60 or something like that something around there you know Mm -hmm. something like that and um i mean yeah he had an unbelievable work ethic and and you know music was his life and so it it doesn't surprise me that he was releasing like three records you know a year sometimes you know because his output was
0: insane wow that's incredible (laughs) You, you started playing with z first is that right
1: Yes, I got I got the gig with Amit and Dweezel Zappa's band about six months after I moved to Los Angeles in wow. nineteen in nineteen ninety three. I I I I you know, went to Berkeley College of Music and I totally uh just immersed myself in different styles and just wanted to be a better player and, and really kind of um just prepare myself for, for, for the, you went to Berkeley too, right?
0: I did. Yeah. 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 We we might've overlapped by a semester. I was there like 91 to 93.
1: Ah, yeah. So, I mean, that, that time in Boston was really good for me. There was a lot of benefits. Uh, It was super beneficial for me at that time to interact with the musicians and learn different styles of music and, 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 and I had set the goal, like, I'm going to graduate. Like, most people were just like, I'm just going to go and check it out. And then they just bailed. Most guitar players went there just because Steve Vai went there. You know what I mean? Right. <laughs> but, I, but I set the goal. Like, I was like, I, I'm going to graduate. Like, I'm going to do this program, and I'm going to get it done. And then I'm going to go out to LA and, and just, you know, and then just whatever happens, happens. Well, the timing was pretty amazing because by the time I got there, uh, they were looking for a drummer. So I, you know, I just, because I had um, met Mike Keneally in Boston at, while I was going to Berkeley, we had kept in touch the entire time that I was getting ready to make that transition. And so when I moved to LA, Keneally told Dweezil, he was like, Hey, do you remember that drummer, uh, Joe Travers, that I told you about or whatever? And he said, yeah. And he said, well, he lives out here now, you know? And he said, well, dude, have have him come down and audition. So it just, happened you know it just came together like that and um and i got the gig that was in 1993 and i haven't looked back
0: you know Uh, wow in six months that's pretty good it's
1: not bad i was like so hungry man i would have i was going for it like i was trying so hard to get my name around and just play you know how it is you know Mm -hmm. and this is and this is back when there's like again no youtube no internet no way to have that kind of social networking so i was the guy who was like we were walking around town with a friggin' press kit with a headshot and a, <laughs> and a VHS tape with my playing and a little bio and all this shit. Like I was going for it. Like I, I yeah. super, I was so super ready and super into it. And, um, but yeah, it's just, you know, uh, and, and it's funny too, because if you would have said like, what's your ultimate gig? Like, what is the gig that you would just love to do? Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the first thing that I would have wanted to do is to play with Dweezil and Ahmed, And that's exactly what happened. It's so crazy. So crazy to think about it now, you know, this all these years later, you know?
0: Yeah. Wow. VHS. That's pretty advanced. Like, bu-
1: yeah, Cause everybody at that time, you know, they were like, you know, I had like, a, cassette. a CD or a cassette or something. And I was like, fuck that. I'm going to go visual. Like I'm, I want people to see uh, it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I had a CD, but I had like, I had like a thirteen-minute compilation of like, like Danny Seraphine call I had worked with him, so he called my answering machine and left a little thing on my answering machine. So I had them all spliced in with people I'd worked for, and then like segments of songs I'd recorded. You know, and it was all narrated by a friend of mine. So I try to go a little bit more intense too, but it's still just a CD. I, I, yeah, I, uh, I think Dude, you,
1: Danny Seraphine, man, I fucking I love that guy. Yeah, I, I love his drumming and uh that's like one of the very first guys that i've ever that i ever like heard as a super i mean 1970 i was two years old and my my mom was playing those chicago records she loved them
0: yeah
1: i was just like that was just like background music for me you know and so uh and and i've had a couple instances of meeting him and talking to him and he was always super cool you know
0: Yeah. He's a great guy. I've known him for over 20 years now and we've just worked on and off together. And every time I'm with him, I'm just like, I can't even believe that you know my name. You know what I mean? It's like one of those, I'm sure you have the same experiences, but, uh,
1: I'm a big fan fan of the, of of the Danny Seraphine.
0: Yeah. 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 (laughs) Great, dude. Really fun to play with. Speaking of fun to play with, I mean, so Dweezil and Amit, I I was watching a bunch of interviews with them today and they just seem like the craziest dudes. That must have been just a totally nutty gig.
1: You know, the thing about those two together at that time was like the both of them together equaled Frank in a way because Dweezel was coming from the music uh, side of things where like, you know, just like really devoted to playing the guitar and and the music side. Not that Amit wasn't, but, but Amit's uh, sense of humor and his unpredictability and his just the sheer balls Of you know, just saying that he would say at any time and stuff. That dynamic mixed in with with Dweezil really kind of again made made it was like wow, there's Frank right there. You know what I mean? Like those, you know, you separate them and you and it's like two ingredients, and then you put them together, and it kind of equals you know, it kind of equals what you would expect. You know, right, right. And it was really fun during that time to be in that band because uh, you know when they were getting along, of course. But uh, but it was so fun because. uh, because it was just like gratifying every day. Like I would be sitting there rehearsing all this music and and you know Keneally's in the band. And at first it was Scott Tunis on, on bass, and then later on it ended up being Brian Beller on bass. Right. And and I was, you know, great friends with all these guys. So the so the camaraderie was there. We were rehearsing every day. The band was fucking insanely tight. I mean, so tight, so good, you know, at that time. And uh and I just felt like Oh my God! there's nothing that we can't do like we are like I'm ready to conquer the world with this thing <laughs> <You> know <laughs> it was really fun. It was really fun, unfortunately, it didn't last you know they they broke up in ninety six you know that's kind of when yeah. it kind of dissolved but but during those between ninety three and ninety six it was really there was that band was really special. There was something going on there, you know the timing of it was interesting too, because if you think about the music that was happening, Eric at that time like you know uh it was like we're coming out of the hair metal days right we're coming out of extreme and that right. kind of stuff you know nuno and and things like that mm. but you know nirvana and pearl jam and temple of the dog and all that stuff is coming around and so it's like transition point and so the thing about uh dweezle and omit's band is that because it was so potent musically mm. that we we kept our heads above water Right. instead of instead of getting drowned out by the the the, the you know the the because nine inch nails was super happening at that point and i mean you know there was just like there was a lot of room for a good 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 playing rock and roll band still right even though, even though it was getting simpler and grungier and, and more rocking and stuff but the but the whole hair thing was just like we were kind of like on the cusp of <laughs> the out of that, right, and the end of the it was interesting, um, but you know it was it was fun while it lasted for sure.
0: Yeah, because uh, one of the interviews I saw was on MTV. I mean, Dweezil still was sort of connected with the MTV thing because I remember watching him on MTV growing up a lot because he was kind of a host, really. You know, like a totally. I don't totally. know if he was an official VJ, but he was he like had a show or whatever. You know, so um, he, he was he
1: was like almost. A, I think he was pretty much an official VJ. He was on there a lot. Yeah. And, um, and yeah, I mean, that was a good time for his career because he had his solo records that were doing pretty good. You know, he had a, a couple of them and he was on MTV like a lot, getting a lot of exposure. Moon was around at that time with him. So, you know, it was kind of like the both of them. Right. Frank was alive and his career was thriving and MTV was was just super happening. Like MTV was it, you know?
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. So
1: that was a good time for, for them, for the Zappas.
0: Yeah, it still had music on MTV. Yeah, <laughs> yes. some people might not realize that the M actually stands for music.
1: Right, <laughs> that's right. Now it now it stands for monotonous. Monotonous. TV.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so was was Frank still alive when you were working with them? Did you get a chance to meet him? And and
1: I did. I did get a chance to meet him. Um, it was very limited time timing wise because I joined in March of nineteen ninety three and he passed away in December. So wow. I didn't get I didn't get that many opportunities. Mm-hmm. But um he did see me play with the band. Very and good and he was he was like super thumbs up, which, you know, made my heart just, you know, so I was just like, oh my God, my hero, you know? <laughs> and uh and um and I did actually get a chance to sit with him a couple times and, and listen to a little bit of music, listen to him work. And um he totally knew that I was a freak for him without me even having to say anything. Uh Like he he could just read my energy, you know, like he just knew, you know, (laughs) so uh, it was pretty amazing. And it's, it's, it's sad that uh, timing wise, I just, I just didn't get the chance to have more of those opportunities, you know, but that's kind of just the way that it worked out.
0: Yeah. Well, it's, it's amazing with a guy that prolific to think about, had he lived longer, like how much oh material, you know?
1: He was fifty-two years old. You know, like yeah. like he was really young, and uh, I'm fifty-two right now. Right. And um, I mean, could you imagine what he would be able to do with the technology, the way that it is now, with you know with the Pro Tools and, and just the way that everything is? I mean, yeah. he was a he was a pioneer for for everything digital. He yeah, had the earliest digital audio workstations and the Synclavier and all that stuff. And uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's it's crazy to think about what he could have accomplished had he had all that stuff on his side.
0: Yeah, it's almost like he knew in a way. Maybe that's why he was so prolific. You know, I don't know. He was in a hurry to get all that stuff out, you know?
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Crazy. But it is fun to I was just, you know, going through some of the records on Spotify because most of that stuff is up there. And it's really fun to just hear the technology in what's there. And how you know he used it all, and it's just each record gets crazier and crazier. You know, technology wise, it's I mean, yeah. obviously, it's unbelievable. No, nobody needs my my opinion on that. <laughs> no, it's <laughs> good <Nobody cool. can, laughs> for me to chime in, but uh, it was uh man, it's 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 a pretty amazing stuff. I haven't I I feel like maybe you can speak to it. I don't know. There, you're either a Zappa person or you're not. It's a particular thing that's like you know i think most fans come to it in the way you did where they hear that and it's just like oh this is this is me it's almost a culture you know and uh, yeah,
1: it's it's interesting that there's it there doesn't seem to be that many casual frank zappa fans you know right it's like, they're just like, when they get it, they're like, holy shit. They're like, so they're so consumed by it. They, so they're like lifers. They just go in, you know? <laughs> and then, uh, and then they're, and then, or they're just like, this, this is just way too, you know, does humor belong in music? That's the eternal question. You know, it's like, uh, this is, this is too goofy for me, or or this is too musically over my head. Like, where's the beat, you know, or whatever. Like, yeah. you know, you really have to be, you really have to admire the influences and and the ingredients that make up his music in order to really get it. You know, like you, you know, he was like classically oriented with doo-wop and R and B and uh, with, with humor, you know, Spike Jones and, and, you know, a sense of humor thrown in on the side and you swirl all that together. And it's like, you know, you have to really kind of like be able to respect that stuff in order to kind of get it. If you can't, then that's okay. You know, it's just not for you.
0: Right. But I think it's, it's also music that's meant to be listened to. Like, you don't throw it on while you're mowing the lawn. You know what I mean? Or, like, I'm going to do some yoga. And do, it's not background music. It's, 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 yeah. it's it, dem- it demands your attention. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's just, man, and you blink your eyes and, or you blink your ears and, and, and you miss so much, you know, so much goes by so fast. And in, in a lot of those songs, it's, it's pretty amazing. I was watching a lot of uh, Zappa play Zappa. On, uh, and uh, you were a part of the original lineup of that, right?
1: And yes, yes,
0: and, man, it's it's unbelievable because it's it's been called like a tribute band, I, I've seen it, but it's it's really not because it, it involves a lot of people that played with in the beginning, anyway. People that played like Terry Bozio was on it, right?
1: And, yep, yep. Yeah, yeah, Vi and Napoleon Murphy Brock and Ray White,
0: yeah, yeah.
1: Yep. And then you know, eventually Dweezel just wanted to, you know, try to uh establish that unit as its own thing without having to rely on having those guys. That was one of the things I know that he wanted to do um and that original band you know was uh <laughs> was pretty, really pretty special you know uh yeah. so we we were there was a lot of talent there and there was in the beginning there was um a lot of uh good spirits too you know like we were all kind of just like a team. And uh, we wanted to do the music justice, and um, and we, you know, I think we really definitely accomplished that. It wasn't easy, but but it was uh, it was cool. I lasted pretty long there. I I, I stopped with them in twenty uh, twelve or thirteen. I can't remember something like that.
0: The internet Around. says twenty thirteen.
1: But... Yeah, thank you, thank you. <laughs> My memory is crazy. You know what's crazy is that at that time, when I left Zappa Play Zappa, I had been playing with Dweezil for 20 years.
0: Wow. Isn't that crazy? That's incredible. A long time. like, What was your process? I mean, obviously, you're a huge fan, so you've heard these songs a million times. But to watch everybody play this music for two hours, completely memorized, no one's reading charts. Like what's the process of of even learning an eight minute I mean, most of these songs are like eight minutes long on the records. Then you go live and you're doing solos. I mean, it's a lot of stuff to to retain.
1: You have to be that kind of a musician where you've got the ears to memorize things. That's the first thing. And then the second thing is you just have to have the budget, right? Because if you have enough time to sit there and rehearse these people, right? And if they can retain the stuff, then that's what it's about. It's about having musicians that can retain it and then having the budget to get them up and running for, and, and uh, for, for a significant amount of rehearsal time so that you can go out there and have a confident sounding group to play the stuff the way that it's meant to be played. Cause that was Frank's thing. It's like accuracy, mm. you know, that was like a big deal for him. He didn't really like a lot of mistakes. You know, he really wanted to hear the stuff played right. And so um, you can't like, that was actually Eric. That's one of the, frustrations that he had with working with orchestras because uh, in the world of orchestras you're you really don't get a lot of rehearsal time right so you know so it's just part of this the way that that culture works you know you get like two two three days maybe max and then they just then you're playing with the la phil you're playing well you're playing it. you know what i mean right but that music is pretty demanding and and frank was pretty pretty much a stickler for wanting to hear certain things a certain way and um so you really need to be able to like have a unit that that is willing to spend the time love the music enough to spend the time to make it right and that was a lot of frustration for him is that the orchestras didn't give a fuck they were just like this is a gig here's this crazy music Mm -hmm. you know we've got two days to get it up and running and we're going to do the best we can and if it doesn't work out they could kill it they care less you know what i mean yeah (laughs) that, that was that was tough for him so um yeah that was like we we really wanted to to just like do it right you know at that time
0: And so did you start with the charts like his charts or did you just learn it off the records or
1: It was both It was both and we also uh, we had uh some advantages because uh we were able to go to the actual stems of some of the original songs oh, Wow so, cool Yeah so we we could hear isolated parts and you know like I would have I would have sit down meetings with like Sheila and Jamie and Aaron and I would play them like, here's the flute part. Here's the guitar, the rhythm guitar part, you know, and they would like pick out the notes and they'd write like a little cheat sheet down and then they would implement that, you know, and stuff into, into the rehearsal for the next couple of days. And we also did, we actually, you know, I would dip into some of the old uh, parts too and we would try and get some of uh Frank's original parts that would, that would be written. Not everything was written out, but if it was written out, you know, Gail was kind enough to let us kind of sift through the archives and find some of that stuff. So that was super beneficial, obviously. And it kind of helped separate us from everybody else because we had that uh, major advantage of the stems and the parts.
0: Right. Mm hmm. Yep. and so, how much rehearsal time did it take?
1: I believe there was months. Yeah, yeah. In the beginning, there was months, mm-hmm. and then the unit stayed together for a while. And throughout time, you know, like as the years progressed and stuff, we didn't need as much because, um, you know, we had put the time in to learn a massive vocabulary's worth of tunes. But Dweezil would always like pile on the tunes. You know, like he was famous for like, okay, here's twenty five songs that I want to do. And we would just be like, holy fuck, you know, Jesus Christ, we're going to have to learn 25 songs. And everybody would go home, sh- go home you know, uh, shedding all this stuff. And then when the time came, we got to maybe like 11 of them. You know, and it was like, <laughs> oh my uh, God, so frustrating. Uh, uh, like, dude, don't, don't pile it on, man. You know, like... <laughs> uh,
0: it's, <laughs> it's the worst. <laughs>
1: yeah. <it's> super <laughs> worst. I mean, you know, we were all getting paid and everything, but still, it's like, I felt bad for everybody, like, going home and shedding twenty five kind of hard, kind of hard songs, you know <laughs> yeah,
0: a little bit, <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah, that drives me nuts just in general when people bog you down, so then you can't learn you can't spend the time on the songs that you really want to because there's so many songs, and then when you get to the rehearsal and you're only doing a few, it's like I could have really killed these few songs if you yeah, that.
1: absolutely, absolutely, there's no doubt about it, you know yeah. it's like yeah, it's kind of like um you know, good organizational skills. Like let's just focus on these and make as right. the best as we can be, you know? Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. So when you're playing this stuff, like normally for me anyways, like I'm kind of just focused in on the drums cause I'm a bass player. I'm, I'm listening to the kick drum and the hi-hat and I'm just trying to lock. This music is not really like that. Like, because it's sometimes it's really funky and really groovy. Other times there's lines that you're doubling with the guitar player or, or just the keyboard player. So like what's in your monitor? Like what, what are you focused on? Do you have a general thing or are you just constantly, you know, okay, now I gotta listen to that. Now I gotta listen to this. Like the sound check must be a nightmare.
1: Well, you know, once we went in-ears, we were all in-ears and stuff. And so it was like kind of like a monitor nightmare, a monitor man nightmare. But um, at one point, uh, Dweezil went with this system where everybody had their own mixer. Right. So we were kind of like all dialing up up our own things, you know, and plus in the beginning of the, in the beginning tours, we were playing with video. So we were actually playing with Frank, which which was cool. So we had like, like my mixer, I had a mixer. uh, I was the one that had a mixer, my own isolated mixer before anybody else in the band, because I was the one driving everybody with the click track to the video. so i had like a stereo mix of the band the live band fed to me from the monitor engineer and then i had one track of click and then one track of the of uh frank's vocal and guitar from the video so i had like basically one two three like four four tracks that i was kind of like mixing in real time as i was playing um but here's the thing during the rehearsal time i was super involved and like, like to like to make sure that everybody was playing the right shit, you know? So we were dissecting everything during rehearsals, but that band was so good and so consistent that once they got the stuff up and running, I didn't really have to like monitor that shit anymore. Like I felt like I didn't have to constantly, uh, almost everybody, you know, (laughs) (laughs) Once, once they got it up and running, they were there, you know? And then by the time our first shows came, it was like, well, We did the we did the work and now it's up to you at that point, right? So um, I didn't have to have all those instruments just blaring away. I just had to have a really kind of you know I wanted I wanted to feel my drums and I wanted to uh, just kind of get an overall. But I didn't have to have everything like super screaming loud and you know and and all that stuff. Like at that by that time I was just kind of coasting. Once we get to the shows, it's just like just give me a good decent mix, you know, with a little ambience in there and. And I'll just play the tunes, you know?
0: Wow. Well, yeah, it's, it's, it's another, it's amazing thing that we have YouTube now too, because, you know, I've spent like the last two days just watching you play with all these different, you know, setups and, and there's so much on there with the Zappa plays Zappa. It's it's really, really cool.
1: Yeah. That original, the the DVD that we did, we did a DVD from the first tour, which was shot in Portland and Seattle. Mm-hmm. And um and I'm so happy that uh, that that exists. Uh, you know, some a lot of that stuff is on YouTube. Obviously, the really well shot stuff. Mm-hmm. And um I'm glad that that was documented because um there was so much work that went into that original tour. You know, with Terry and Steve Vai and all that. And so I'm I'm so glad. And you know, we won a Grammy for one song, which is yeah. which is which is crazy. I would have never expected that at all. In fact, I didn't think that that was going to happen at all. I didn't go. You know, <laughs> I was I was completely working at the Zappa house the night that the Grammys happened and they all went, you know, everybody went, the entire band went, except me. I didn't go. And, uh, and, uh, when I went at the time, uh, you know, uh, working at the house that that house was located in little Canyon, right. Which is now Lady Gaga's house.
0: Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I did hear that actually. Yes,
1: Yes. So I would work up there and, and it was like, I didn't get really get that good a cell, uh, cell phone response, you know, up there. Mm-hmm. So when it was like 7:38 o'clock or something like that and I was calling in at night and I was getting ready. I the driving down the hill from Laurel Canyon all of a sudden you know as soon as my cell phone got cell phone response it just <laughs> completely blew up like ding 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 I was like holy shit my phone's going crazy and then I thought oh my god we must have won you know like <laughs> holy shit we won you know <laughs> that's
0: so cool Yeah wow, wow, that's a great story <laughs> When you say you you were working at the house, so you you are you're the the vaultmeister. Yes. Uh, explain to me exactly what that is.
1: So I, I'm in charge of um, basically digitizing and documenting the, the contents of of the vault, uh, accumulating data and helping to produce future projects for the trust. And I've been doing it now for you know a long long time. Since 1995 is when I was. 1995 is when I started doing it and then probably around 96 97 is when I started getting involved in in like helping out with material for releases mm. and then I started working side by side with Gale and we were kind of like a joint production team and we were doing releases through mail order and then you know you know back and forth with different record companies and then everything came together in 2012, which was pretty amazing. Universal uh, became the, the main record company that all the, of Frank's catalog is being distributed through. And, and we've had a really wonderful relationship with them ever since. And so the entire catalog, the entire 120-some records can all be found through Universal, on Spotify, on your favorite streaming. It's, it's wonderful because for the longest time, fans, the fans know that the history of the catalog is it was kind of like uh divided amongst different companies from a long time. And uh, the, the catalog was kind of like spread spread out. And some of it was out of print. Some of it was in print. It was kind of a mishmash of contracts throughout all the years. Mm-hmm. And by the time 2012 came, everything kind of got put in one big basket and we finally made it all like available through one thing. And it was a dream come true. We got to remaster a lot of the catalog and make it sound amazing. And, kind of like you know start from scratch and and represent it to the people and um it was just for me it was a dream come true it was so wonderful to be able to have that opportunity and make that catalog shine and now here we are like you know almost 10 years later and it's thriving you know we've got so many so many releases so so but the vaultmeister i mean you know you have to like you have to know how to handle tape you have to know the different kinds of tape you have to not ruin it because there's a lot of uh tape that just won't play you know a lot of these formats uh just haven't lasted over time due to the elements Mm -hmm. so you really have to know how to handle you have to know how to run the machines and you know do transfers and um run a database and back everything up multiple times make sure you don't lose all your work and um also you have to migrate files to the modern stuff too you know like You know, like things that were on DA eighty eight and AD ADAT and all that stuff. If you were in that world, you have to be able to transfer that shit and get that into wave, you know, wave files and hard drives and things that are of the now. Right. So with Frank, he was doing, um, you know, analog tape, film, videotape, like one inch and two inch quad videotape, and um, then he was doing a lot of floppy disk stuff and. You know, in the early days of digital, all floppies, which is hilarious, and um, so yeah, it's my job to make sure that that stuff lives on for the ages. And then, and while I'm doing that, archiving away, I'm I'm you know now a a joint joint producer with Amit uh, Zappa, who is uh, in Amit and Diva are in charge of the Zappa Trust currently, and so we, as a team, work uh, with uh, as presenting these latest releases the things that have been coming out uh now because G- gail has passed you know and so she's mm-hmm. not here and so um so that's where we're at these days and it's
0: been going great wow and how did that come about did you apply okay, so... <laughs> to dad in the la weekly
1: no so being the, being the drummer right for omit um, and dweezil i was at the house a lot just kind of recording there and just you know being at the house and uh frank after frank had passed there was a crew of people that he left behind you know a a technician an engineer uh, a secretary uh, a bunch a bunch of people and um so obviously i was you know around them and one day i just kind of couldn't help it any longer i was like please take me down in the vault I i just would love to see the vault i mean anybody that's a super fan that's like, you know, going to the freaking candy store, you know?
0: <laughs> exactly. So
1: so they brought they brought me down there and I was like, just kind of like looking around with my eyes wide open and my jaw hitting the floor going, holy shit, look at all of this stuff. And like, I just, I was like, I was like, oh my God, you know what this is? And you know what this is? Like just reading the, the sides of the spines of the tape boxes. I was like, oh my God, oh my God. And so they went back and told Gail, they said, hey, Dweezil's drummer knows a lot about what's in the vault. And so she goes, great, he's the (laughs) vaultmeister. And the next thing I knew, literally, the next thing I knew, I was, you know, I had a key to the vault and I was standing in the vault by myself with a pad of paper and a pen. I had no computer skills whatsoever. Whoa. Very minimal, very minimal uh, experience with tape. Very minimal, mm. and it was on-the-job training. Man, I, I went for it. You know, I had I had the luxury of knowing a lot of the uh history of, mm-hmm. of music. Right. So I, I instantly started, like you know, learning how to run a database, learning how to run a computer, learning how to run tape machines, learning how to not fuck up tapes. <laughs> I learned from the best. You know, I just yeah. So it was uh, it was um quite an unbelievable experience. You know, to think back on it now but yeah, yeah. that's how, that's how it happened
0: wow and you when you say vault so was it stored in in a in the proper way even like is it just yes. a basement or is it like it was like,
1: an it was a, a underground vault that was built underneath the house and it was wow. climate controlled and concrete ah. and um unfortunately it did have a little bit of leaks here and there so when it rained it was a total nightmare uh. but um but for the most part that stuff was um was kept under lock and key in a a good, decent, climate controlled area.
0: So he knew that he needed to protect all this stuff and he yeah. had to kind of set up.
1: Here's what's interesting about that is um he was one of the first artists in in music history to obtain the rights to all of his original master tapes. So wow. like in early nineteen eighties, like probably eighty or eighty one, he won a lawsuit that got all the original tapes from MGM verve in the sixties and all the Warner brothers tapes and all that stuff. He was able to get all acquire all that stuff. And I think Bowie might've been one of the second people to do that or whatever, just to, you know, Mm -hmm. they all all made deals with RICO disc and started reissuing all this thing, you know, all that stuff on those early days in the, in the eighties. But, but yeah, so, so like all those master tapes ended up being in his possession. And so he, uh, just started, you know, he didn't really spend too much time doing a lot of vault work because he was really kind of interested in doing new, new music. But he knew that there was an, an, an audience for those old old recordings. And so he kind of, you know, devoted some time to doing vault stuff, some, some time to doing interviews, some time to doing television, some time to doing screenplays and his own new music. I mean, it was just nonstop, nonstop. Incredible. Yeah. The work ethic
0: was he a, he wasn't a drinker or like was he one of those clean and sober dudes that just worked all the time
1: totally i mean he he was uh, he would have like a margarita or uh, a little uh, some red wine you know socially or whatever, but no he he wasn't interested in getting fucked up you know for him, it was about uh cigarettes and double espressos right you know, that, <laughs> that was food food and water double espressos and cigarettes.
0: <laughs> 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 wow that's awesome yeah. yeah so it's 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 quite a responsibility that that was bestowed upon you
1: it really is and uh it's funny because like you know when you're in it you, you you know that you've got a job to do and and uh you're just kind of grinding away and stuff but when you when i when i do reflect when i do look back on the amount of um stuff i've been involved with and the opportunities and it's it's just like it's a, it's a, it really is a mind blower like it's just super, 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 super incredible to think about the, uh, the gifts, you know, to be able to have this opportunity to, uh, just be involved in such an amazing legacy, you know?
0: Yeah. And so you probably digitized that very first song that you heard as that little kid. That's right. (laughs) That's pretty insane.
1: That's, that's right. Yeah. When we, (laughs) when we remastered the, uh, the catalog for 2012, it was so crazy to just go to the original tapes and retransfer them all, you know, one by one, each record. Mm. And it, was, it was so great. It was wow. it's just amazing. Yeah. You know what's amazing, Eric, is like, you know, Frank was such a master at razor blade editing, right? Yep. And, and with Pro Tools, you know what it's like to do editing in Pro Tools, obviously, mm. you know, and that's, that's like so convenient and so the way to go. But, you know, cutting tape was an art. Right. And he, and he was such a master at it. And when you put the original masters of some of these records up and you let them play and you see the, the, ta- the tape edits going by, you're just like, holy shit. Like the, wow. amount of t- the amount of time spent on just sitting there and, you know, because like literally like bars of music being cut together. It's just, it's really insane, man. It's, it's unbelievable. And he did, it.
0: he did it himself? Yeah. Wow i guess it's sort of the modern day or modern day then now it's now it's even obsolete now but at that point the modern day equivalent of beethoven sitting at a piano with a with a pencil you know scoring out every little detail of the thing he's there with a razor blade and tape and uh,
1: yeah well first he did that first he sat and wrote the little dots on paper right and then and then it became (laughs) yeah yeah the razor blade was an instrument
0: yeah wow that's crazy And a lost art, a lost art nowadays. Yeah. These kids today, man, they just. (laughs) They have no clue. (laughs) So there are a lot of us out of work right now, uh, waiting to get back to playing shows and touring. And I know I've had to do whatever I can do to take my mind off the situation from time to time. And one of the ways to pass the time is to catch up on some books you've missed But if you're like me and you don't love to read, (laughs) there's another way you can consume. Audible.com has thousands of titles to choose from, including audiobooks about music production, songwriting, the music business, music theory, instructional audiobooks, and biographies of your favorite musical heroes. But besides audiobooks, you can also listen to podcasts, theatrical performances, A-list comedy, and exclusive audio originals you won't find anywhere else. Right now, you can get a free 30-day trial if you visit audibletrial.com slash divebarrockstar. That's audibletrial.com slash divebarrockstar, and you can catch up on your audio reading. I'd like to take a second to thank you for listening to the Dive Bar Rockstar podcast. As a new podcast, getting the word out is a vital part of what it takes to keep the show on the road. Uh or off the road, as the current case may be. If you would like to support the podcast, all you gotta do is subscribe wherever you listen, and if you have an extra minute or two, please leave a review. You can also share and follow the podcast on your social media apps. Okay, enough begging. I hope you're having fun, and once again, thank you for listening. So I wanted to kind of get to the, um, the band that I've... Um, um I'm very impressed that you played with, because I, I, I'm a huge fan. I only saw them once in the 90s, and you were the drummer. Oh, really? <laughs> and, and that is Duran Duran. Yeah. How did that gig come up?
1: Okay, so the first gig that I ever played with and Amit with Z, was um, in May or June or something like that of, of uh, 1993 at a club in L.A. called Club Lingerie. Right.
0: I think it's on the internet actually. I think I watched that today. That's right. That's right.
1: Yeah. There is there is some stuff on there from that's right. That's right. Yeah. So, that was an epic night for me because that was like my first professional gig, you know. First fucking outing with the band. I'm 23 years old. I'm fresh in town. I'm just like I'm ready, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the audience was like celebrity after celebrity. It was completely packed. Weird Al Yankovic was there. Chris Robinson from the Black Crows was there. Um, You know, a lot of the Zappa family's friends were there. Um, And Frank was there, which is insane. So insane. And Warren Cucarulo was there and sat with Frank and Gail at the table, uh, you know, up up there in the balcony. And, uh, you know, Frank was like, wow, that drummer. And Warren was like, yeah, that drummer. So Warren asked me, if I'd be interested in coming to London and do his solo stuff because Duran was in a hiatus because they used to wait so long for Simon to come up with lyrics for the new stuff. They would just be in a holding pattern and Warren used to get really frustrated. So he was like, I want to play, you know, like I want to play, I want to do my stuff. So, um, so I used to go in like 1995 and 1990, like, yeah, like 95 and 96 around there. I used to go to London and play these solo gigs with with a trio. It was Nick Bags, you know Nick Bags? I don't know him. Nick, Nick Bags plays with Stephen uh Wilson now, but he was in
0: Kajagoogoo.
1: Oh. He's, cool. he's a bass bass player. Oh, yeah,
0: yeah, Kajagoogoo. Uh, yeah, crazy. yeah.
1: So so Nick it was me, Nick and Warren and we were doing like, you know, trio gigs in London. Wow. And so so that's kind of how it started and then you know Wes Miller Yes. Well,
0: okay. I, I never actually met him, but I, I saw him play at Berkeley. I was at Berkeley with him. And
1: okay. So I, you, know, you know about him, right? Yes. absolutely. So <clears throat> I told Warren, I said, well, listen, if you ever decide that you want to do some gigs in, in, in the States, you know, in LA or whatever, I said, I've got the bass player for you. I said, you don't have to bring Nick over, you know, and spend the money. I said, I've got someone here. So I introduced him to Wes. So it was Wes and I and Warren playing gigs together. Okay doing his doing his music. And then John Taylor bailed on Duran Duran in 1996 or 97, okay? Mm-hmm. So so West got the call. Right? So West now is in Duran Duran. Wow. Now, and I was like, "Oh my god, that's so great. You know, I'm so happy for you, man, you know." And they toured uh, you know, for 97 uh and uh maybe a little bit of uh 98 or whatever. And then in 99 they had a kind of a tour scheduled and uh, their drummer got into a scheduling conflict with Jeff Beck because he was playing yeah. with Jeff Beck. And so I wake up one day and there's a message on my machine and it's Warren saying, Joe, the time has come, man. <laughs> you need to give me a call. And then right after that was Wes going, Joe, <laughs> Holy shit, man! You're not gonna believe this, but Warren just called me, and you know, and I was like, "Oh my god, it's happening!" Like, I, like, I knew it. Like, I, <laughs> I knew what was going on, you know. Right. So the next thing I knew, man, I, I, you know, I, uh, I, I had a ticket to go to London. And I went, and I, I learned all the material, and and we played, and it was totally cool. And uh, so I, I, I ended up being, I ended up doing that gig from 1999 to 2001, and in 2001, that was when Duran. Decided to do a reunion with the original cats, right? So yeah. Warren, Wes, and myself were out of a out of a job at that point, but that was cool. You know, it was an amazing, amazing experience. Two years of two years of that, you know. Yeah, and uh, and, uh, and so that's how that's how it came. That's how it came together.
0: And were you a fan before that, or is it just just a gig? You know, I wasn't a super fan during the eighties,
1: mm-hmm. but when Warren joined. Yeah. I started you know like kind of like I started listening a little more because like you know come on let's face it. Come on and ordinary world mm-hmm. and notorious and and you know that kind of stuff those are those are really good songs. Yeah. You know? And and he he was responsible for a, a, he was a big deal. He was a big part of the kind of comeback of Duran Duran uh during that time like the wedding album you know and right. that kind Yeah, of stuff. absolutely. Yeah. So, so their material, like I really liked the thank you record, which was the cover record. You know, mm-hmm. I, I was liking everything that was happening. So uh, I was definitely uh, more interested in that stuff, but right. I had no problem learning the 80s stuff. I mean, it was fun. Like, you know, learning girls on film and planet earth and yeah. you know all that stuff. It was all super, super fun music to play. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't like it was a bum out at all. It was just great. You know? Right.
0: Yeah, I, I'm, I'm and you know as a fan of Duran Duran, it was cool when they all reunited and everything. But I always think about Warren too because he was such a big part of the band for a long time. Like he was in that band for a, a decade, over a decade, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely, uh, absolutely. And they wrote some great music together. Yeah, War, Warren is a he's a just a he's an insanely talented person. You know, yeah. So, um, so their their time, they produced some great music during his time.
0: And were they still, you know, they're legendary for parties and women. And was it still crazy by the time you got in the band?
1: It was still crazy. It was fun. Yeah. I mean, it was all, it was all, you know, respectful and everything, you know, but it was, but it was, yeah, it was, it was insane. I I got to live out my rock and roll fantasies, you know, (laughs) being in that band, you know, I was, I mean, I had hair at that time and I was, I was thinner and I was in good shape and I was dressing up and glamming it up, you know, because I grew up, I grew up with Alice Cooper and T-Rex and Sweet and all those glam, you know, I was a glam rocker out of you know, that was like, and I love Marilyn Manson and I love nine inch nails and I love stuff like that. Right. Mm-hmm. So I, I, rock fantasy stuff is like, you know, the good shit. That's, that's, that's the <laughs> stuff that I used to really, really love. Right. And so, wow. You know, next thing I know, like, wow, I can actually get leather pants and I can wear, A a turquoise fishnet uh, top and a feather boa, and I'll be okay in this band.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You almost have to to keep the gig.
1: (laughs) It was so fun. Like I remember, you know, Wes and I sitting during rehearsals when there would be a little bit of off time. You know, like we'd play for a couple hours and then we'd get some food and chill out, right? And when we would be chilling, they'd be doing business in the other room or whatever. You know, like phone calls and whatever they'd be doing. And Wes and I would be in the in the green room painting our nails.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You
1: know? <laughs> it, was so fun. it was so great and uh, so yeah i mean i met some really really great people you know they they had a, a pretty strong fan base and uh touring touring during that time i i made some i made some friends it was really fun
0: that's cool yeah and, and how is nick rhodes as a keyboard player
1: he's good he's 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 uh minimalistic but but effective and classy you mm-hmm. know and debonair yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and uh and he was my favorite, he was my favorite, you know, oh
0: boy,
1: like, yeah, like like talking with him, and we had a lot musically in common, even though I was uh kind of like a i don't know maybe ten years younger than him or more, probably, but I grew up on a lot of the same stuff that he like the stuff that he was listening to when he was you know a young teenager and stuff, like mm-hmm. if he was sixteen, you know, I don't actually really know exactly how old he is, but I'm going to assume that like when he was 16 and listening to Bowie, I was six or seven listening to Bowie because of my uncle being 10 years older than me and and exposing me to all this great shit. So all this stuff that that he was into that turned him into the musician that he is, mm-hmm. I was also listening to at an awkwardly young age, right? So, <laughs> so, so we had that in common. And I think that uh, that was like, it kind of bonded us a little bit. Mm -hmm. it was it was cool like you know he liked a lot of the same shit that i did so it was it was great that we had that in common now simon and i on the other hand was that's a a different story (laughs) yeah different story uh you know but um but you know in the end simon was um very complimentary about my drumming which Mm -hmm. meant a lot to me and uh so uh that you know i came i came out of that whole experience feeling like i know that i did a really good job and that they were really happy and that's ultimately that's ultimately you know uh that Mm -hmm. makes me feel good about about all of it and i and i got to have a blast i had a blast at during that time you know and it happened at a time in my life where it was like it was perfect because i was like 31 or 32 years old and i could still play the part of being a rock star if i wanted to you Mm -hmm. know Absolutely. And, um, and, uh, but, but yet I hadn't had, I had never played to sh- uh, like, like shows to that extent of like screaming people. Right. I, I can remember walking out on stage and the screams were so loud that like my, my fucking ears would bottom out. Like it was so loud. It hurt. Mm -hmm. holy shit this is what that that's what this sounds like
0: (laughs) (laughs) and (laughs) so you probably weren't on in-ears at that point i was i was oh oh, got you yeah
1: yeah but i would have them oh you would have
0: to be yeah 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 tracks and stuff Right.
1: every song on that gig except for maybe one or two was with a click right so and and that was cool it was cool with me i didn't mind it
0: yeah right well that's kind of why i asked about nick rhodes because Back in the day, I I remember Roger with the big headphones, you know, so they were one of the first bands that are, are using a click all the time. And because Nick Rhodes actually had a computer like a, like a, you know, CRT monitor on the stage, you know, early on. And I'm always wondering, like, how much is he playing? And how much is it, you know, and it's, I'm sure it's all his craft work, you know, to, well, uh, that's a funny Phrase, but yeah, yeah, yeah. computer music but anyway uh or, or you know how much is he playing and how much is the computer playing and so obviously there would have to be in-ears or, or some kind of headphones it was half and half
1: honestly like there was a lot of tracks there was a lot of background vocals and a lot of keyboard parts and pads
0: mm-hmm.
1: but but he was also you know playing live with it yeah he had this, i remember he had this really cool uh thing that he would put his hand in front of and it would right. like sound you know yes yeah, so i remember he, that yeah so he was doing that kind of shit and um just like looking amazing you know <laughs> and like and taking his finger and going boop, and then you know a sound would happen and he'd still be looking amazing and he'd have his finger up to his ear and he's listening intently and it was there's the next sound you know
0: <laughs>
1: it was perfect right was yeah, perfect. yeah, yeah yeah yeah
0: so cool and so uh, you know, I don't know. Great band though. Just I really loved how the parts all intertwined and like no matter whether he's playing it or not, like even if it's a simple part, it's like they all work. It's well produced stuff, you know. They really are an interesting band in the in the way that their parts all work, you know. But
1: well, yeah. as a bass player, I mean, you have to admire those lines and those oh, are.
0: Oh, forget you know. about it i think he's most the most underrated bass player in rock history honestly like <laughs> you really try to play that stuff it's one thing to listen to it and if you think it's cheesy pop music fine you can think that it it'll come across like that but try to play rio yeah bass. you know that bass line is no joke it is yeah. not easy you know
1: yes so, yeah
0: Yeah, absolutely but wes nailed it the night that i saw you oh, guys oh my you know? God. Like, yeah, he was, was- a, Really great bass player. And you know, you know him from Berkeley, right?
1: Yeah, we met at Berkeley um, in 1990. And uh, I played with him and I was like, holy shit, I started introducing him to everybody. You know, like, this kid is fucking amazing. He had like a yellow factor bass. Remember those?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: so he had a yellow one of those, I think, or a black one, I can't remember. And, um, and, uh, and, you know, I mean, like, you know, all you had to do was listen to him and you knew that he was talented you know? Yeah. So, uh, and I moved out to Los Angeles in 1992 and it wasn't very long that he followed. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure I came out first, but um, yeah, he didn't have to worry. All people had to do was listen to him play and he would get gigs, you know, he was just so good. It's yeah. so, so uh, sad that he had, that he left us at such an early age. Yeah. It was a real super loss of uh of talent and a super super sweet guy. Yeah. I mi- I miss Wes.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I bet so. Yeah. He passed away of cancer, right? Yeah, it was like
1: thyroid stuff. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. yeah. Yeah, I saw him play a bunch of times because I was actually there at Berkeley. But I one time I specifically remember it was the first time I saw you play actually because it was Brian Bellers, uh, another bass player from Berkeley, his senior recital. Yeah, I remember. He that. Came out. You had come back. You had graduated, but came back to play that, and I, yes. I was in the room. And uh, and he and Wes did a bass duet during that. You know, yeah, just really really cool. And...
1: Yes, he did. Uh, they did a um, a better Mouse Trap by uh, John. John Patitucci. That was one of them.
0: Yeah. 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 (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Great. Great times.
1: Yeah. I remember coming back. Brian had, um, miles, you know, on his, on his airline account (laughs) they they flew me back and it was so, it was so nice to come back and play that show and be around everybody again. You know? Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Berkeley. It's cool. Did you have a good time there? I loved Berkeley. I loved it.
1: You know, I, I had, uh, I had an amazing time there. I was I was super super busy though, like I had a gay, I was working at Tower Records the entire oh. time, the entire time that I was there. I had a job, so I was working at Tower Records and I had a girlfriend and I was going to school. So it was just like nonstop. It was really I mean, being that young, you can ha- you can have that kind of lifestyle and be cool with it. Mm-hmm. It was literally every day like non nonstop, but it was fun.
0: You've mentioned it before, but it was a great time to be at Berkeley. I I think you know Berkeley was now it's massive. It's this big, huge. They've taken over all of Back Bay, and it's really expensive. I mean, it was really expensive then, but kind of not like it is now. And I don't know. Boston was a cool place, and and uh, I I really had a good time. I wasn't there as long as you, but I I had a really great time there too. Well, that's
1: really cool. Let's talk about that for a second, okay? Okay. So so. Yes. Boston is an amazing town. I love Boston. I enjoyed my time there so much. But I did, when I was on tour with, was either Zappa Play Zappa or Joe Satriani? I can't remember which one it was, but I went back to, the, to that area, Back Bay, you know, that, that street, Mass Ave and Newbury. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that, just, that, that whole area there, right? right. And I went, I went back there one afternoon just to like have lunch and to walk around and see what was going on around there because I hadn't been there in so long. And it was super sad. It was super disappointing. And because, I mean, when I was there, it was like musician heaven. Because you had like three different music stores. You had like Daddy's Junkie Music and Jack's Drum Shop and um, Manny's. Manny's, right. right? And all this stuff. And then you had uh, record shops. You had Looney Tunes, which was a cool record shop. And then you had Tower Records on the corner there, which was huge. And then you had Newberry Comics down the street. So you had like three cool record shops to go to. Yeah. And then there was like um uh you know like cool places to eat to pizza shops and like whatever. Was, yes. <laughs> yes. And um and so like there was like there was like so much to do if you were a musician. Like there was so much energy there. Mm. And all of that is gone. Like all of that is gone. You know, Jack's drum shop is gone, Manny's you know, all the music stores are gone. Tower records is gone. Yeah. Uh Newberry Comics is still there looney Tunes i don't think is there. um most of the restaurants are now like chain, like uh, uh like there's a McDonald's and there's still I think the pizza shop, but everything else got bought out by by the school and it's like you know how many places do you need in order to buy books
0: right you know, or sweatshirts
1: that say Berkeley on it it's like it's like oh my God, and you know New York City has turned that way too like I remember going to New York City in the nineties and there was great great places to go check out if you're a musician just like there were tons of places to play if you're a musician you know cool right. classic bars but then like you know if you went down to st um st mark's place there was like trash and vaudeville and all these great cool stores for clothes and and record shops and all that stuff and now and video stores and media and all that shit and now all that shit's gone and everything you know all the venues are bought up you know like all the classic venues are gone all all the record stores are gone everything's gone it's like yeah. how, how many starbucks do we need you know it's like
0: yeah yeah it's that. true well i i i wonder how much this covid thing is going to change everything and this massive break right now of us like everything being put on hold everybody taking a step back from this crazy materialistic sort of life that we've we've grown accustomed to and now you're you're having to deal with some pretty heavy stuff with this virus and everything. I don't know. I, I wonder if that's going to shake some soul back into some people. I don't know.
1: Yeah, I hope, I hope that, um, you know, the people are realizing how much they miss music, live music, you know, and like going out and seeing bands play and concerts and all that stuff. Like, you know, yeah. that's part of our culture. And I'm hoping that, um, people aren't being like, Hey, we've been without it this long. We don't fucking need that shit. It's like, come on, you know?
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it's going to be just the opposite. I think people are just champing at the bit to get back into it. You know what I mean? Like every time we even open up a little bit, it's like people flub to the clubs, you know, people are just anxious to get out. And these, these uh, drive-in theater shows that have been happening, they're selling out and, and uh, people are, are really missing it. And, you know, we're, we're guys who tour, still and i've been for the last three years touring hardcore like 135 shows a year and uh Amazing.
1: that's so great that you people, have, that you're doing that.
0: yeah and there's you know plenty of people doing it and people are still selling out shows you know what i mean it's like it's it might not be as big as it used to be but people there is still fandom out there somewhere you know yeah so, and now that they can't do it, they're going to be uh, you know' it's going to be off the chain once this thing opens up again, I think I hope
1: I do too, I do too, for sure, yeah, yeah, so crazy
0: well, well, anyways, back to you uh, <laughs> How do we get yeah. back to the... <laughs> Oh my God <laughs> Well, I wanted to also kind of connect like Warren Cucarulo uh missing persons yeah zappa it's all sort of zappa related still that's right it's the nirvana zappa continuum it's so yeah.
1: true yeah frank is like you know there's a thread in yeah. so, in so much that leads back to him you know and how much he touched so much and uh, so yeah that uh, you can't escape it it's so true um all these great all those great musicians that came through his band that went on to have their own careers you know and uh and so the the tree has so many branches and yeah. when you look at it when you look at how many you know wonderful wonderful things that has spawned through the three decades of of frank being around it's uh it's super impressive and you know another thing that's really amazing is how well respected and revered frank is and I'll, you know another thing too i will say that about duran duran yeah. I re- I remember Eric when I was on the road with those guys and we would be playing like, you know, like some shows with other bands on it. Like I remember we were doing some festivals or something and then we would be doing some special engagement and there would be some bands of the now that would be on the r- on the bill with us, like um Orgy, remember them and all that uh, stuff. Like there'd be all these bands that were like, you know, the the you know, of the now and they would be on the bill with us. And then like I remember just like they all just wanted to come and say hello and meet them and pay their respects and just be like, you guys were like so, you know, and I used to just sit in the back and, and you know, have a glass of wine and just watch all that kind of stuff. And they were and you know, Simon and, and Nick were always very, very sweet to to those people, you know, all the mm-hmm. bands, all the different bands that wanted to come and meet them. And I just remember being like, "Yeah, you know these 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 guys are like, you know they're well respected, they're well revered, like you know right. they you know it's, it's true." And, and I'm sure it's I'm sure it's still to this day.
0: Yeah. Well, I think that the Warren years helped to just solidify that because they kept going. They weren't just this passing thing. Thanks to him coming in and them having hit songs, you know. And it's just this whole, like you said, this whole other part of their catalog that makes them a much uh rounder package, you know what I mean? And I remember seeing the show and being so relieved that they did everything that you guys did everything too. It was like there was Girls on Film and Rio and, you know, New Moon on Monday and like well, all those records that you mentioned before, but it it was all in there. And you and you really hear a pretty amazing book. You know what I mean? It's a pretty incredible catalog. Yeah. You know definitely.
1: Yeah, that was quite an experience, man. I was so again. That's like one of those things where I look back and I just am so grateful and blessed that I had that opportunity to 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 do that. You know, to be a part of an organization that was successful, yeah, really successful and a, kind right. of like a legendary band. You know, yeah,
0: absolutely. Yeah,
1: it was really it was really yeah. cool.
0: I did a a short tour with uh, ABC from the oh, yeah, Martin, Martin Fry, and yeah. we were on a a thing, uh, just a big eighties, you know, show. So there was, in fact, the the gig, the one of the last gigs we played was in Vegas at the uh, at the Mandalay Bay. Oh yeah, and uh, at the big, you know, the stage out in the out in the out in the swimming pool and stuff. Anyway, um, and it was a there was probably twenty acts on the show. It started at like two in the afternoon, and we went on at ten. You know what I mean? Yeah across the street in in the big concert stage was Duran Duran. Oh, nice. just Duran Duran. You know what I mean? So that I think is what, that's when you can really tell. Like, here, Here's a bunch of other eighties bands all fitting on the same bill. Duran Duran is selling out 10,000 seats, you know, by themselves because yeah. they're, they've just reached that kind of status, you know?
1: Totally. Um, Do you remember the album, uh, how to be a millionaire by ABC?
0: Yeah. 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 We that's, played that song. actually.
1: I love that. I love that. Record. Yeah.
0: Oh man, dude, that was probably, I, that, I, that tour was three weeks long, because he, he, you know, it was Martin Fry and his guitar player, Matt Backer, came from England, and then Matt Rohde and a uh, um, guy from Tonic, um, Pete Maloney on drums, really, really great. The did, band, they have, did they have a sax player at that time? Well, actually... Um, was it? Was it Jim? Jim uh, yeah, Jim it. came and, and played <laughs> with us. Yeah, 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 yep, yeah. Yep. Jim Miller came and uh, yeah, he was amazing. It was it was a. Anyways, it was a dream gig for me. And like of all the gigs that I've done, you know. That three weeks of time, and we were wearing suits, and it was just like, oh, the nerd, shoot, that poison arrow. I mean, yeah. all the, we just did all the songs, you know, and because we were the sort of the headliner most of the time, so because Martin had like five hits, you know, with um, you know, when Smokey sings and um,
1: the look of, the look love, of love, poison love. arrow, hell yeah.
0: So we, we actually did a little set and then sometimes we would do like an hour set at certain venues, you know, but when it was the big long show, everyone would come out and play their one hit, you know, and sometimes it was two tracks or whatever. Then we get to the, to us and it was like, you know, we'd, we'd have five or six songs on a long show. Um, and so anyways, it was just, it it was such a blast. I'm such an eighties pop nerd, you know, so to have that, and then my wife saw me play with them and she's like. Oh, I understand you so much better now. <laughs> <laughs> just watching me up there, I'm like, now I'm in my element. Put me, put me in a suit, you know, playing this music.
1: Unbelievable! It was, so there was fun. There was a time there in the late '90s and early 2000s where I started playing like a lot with '80s bands. Like it just kind of happened. Like I was in, yeah. I did a gig with Berlin. Oh, uh, just one, and mm-hmm. then uh, I did uh, the Motels. Oh
0: man, that's right. I saw that on your uh, resume yeah. somewhere. That's cool. cool.
1: I, I like Martha; she's great. Uh, and then, of course, I you know I filled in for Terry on the missing persons thing, so that was kind of hilarious. Yeah. So I was like, all of a sudden, like all these '80s things were like popping up. All these '80s work, a lot of '80s work.
0: <laughs> yeah, He's back man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I'm happy about it. It's like I'd rather go do that. You know, there's just a different feeling when you're. Even if you're playing like a modern, the biggest, if you were on Lady Gaga, for instance, right now, or whoever the biggest, Rihanna or whatever, it wouldn't feel the same as, as playing that music that you grow up with. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's a different thing. It's a little more fun in a way.
1: Yeah. It's got that whole nostalgia thing and it was part of you, you know? So it's like more fun to play that music. Cause it's like, you just love it.
0: And this is like why I play music. You know what I mean?
1: Yes. And if you're, you know, lucky enough to be able to play music like that for a living, then it's like at that point, it's like, it's not even work. It's just like, Oh my God, you're just having fun. And that's, that's a great, that's a great time right there. Yeah. That's what it's like for me to play Frank's music because I just love the music so much. It's just like, it's not even work. It's like, I just, I'm, I'm, I'm literally playing stuff that I love. So, you know, it's, it's great.
0: To tell you the truth, like I was saying too, I've, I've never been a Zappa fan. So for the last two days of, cause I I want to be prepared I tend to do my research On these things You know So yeah. in a few days I've just been watching And learning And reading And, and there's so many things Like I started reading about You know uh, Warren And and reading about Terry Bozio Who I knew a lot about Because you can't go to Berkeley Without knowing about Terry Bozio You know <laughs> just the education about zappa and just being reminded and and then learning a lot more is just so cool and and it's i don't know it's just really cool that your dream artist you've been able to be so involved with like congratulations I know. On that.
1: thank you man it, i know it's, it's like it's like fate almost it's just kind of just like sitting there you know it's like, i really truly believe that like if if you're if you know if you're not an asshole and if you really do have the the talent or the goods to, to to set your set a goal and and try to achieve that goal, right? Mm-hmm. I, I think that anything's possible. You know, I really do. I think that uh you know you can really you can really accomplish some things if you if you just you know are together and, and people people's gonna call you you know, people are gonna call you back if they if they like you and if they and if they also like you know what you have to offer musically too, you know, it's just like right. it can just happen, you know yeah i was just really fortunate and lucky and grateful and blessed and all that stuff and i'm just so glad that i've been able to keep uh keep a keep making a living yeah doing it.
0: yeah so that's a steady gig then it's like a yeah it's like yeah. a salaried position or something yeah
1: yeah that's yeah.
0: really great yeah, that's uh, yeah. Lucky.
1: well there's so, a lot to be done you know there's a lot to be done we're working on so much you know that the um for like the last five years, there's been a documentary and the works on Frank Zappa and it's finally coming out. Uh, it'll be available on November on Thanksgiving or as as we're saying, Frank's giving,
0: but it's,
1: uh, yeah, it's finally going to be available to stream. Uh, but, um, it has been playing at some various, um, you know, you had mentioned some of the drive in theaters and Mm -hmm. stuff. And so there has, there has been some festivals that has happened over the past couple months that it, that it's been playing at, but it's sad because obviously with COVID and everything, like it didn't get the uh, true chance to do the theater runs, which is sucks. But, but finally it is, it is coming out. So, you know, we're, we're excited about that. And then we had a soundtrack that we put together that we've been working on. And so it's been, uh, it's been uh, a lot of work, but it's, it's finally actually going to be happening. So that's exciting that if you get a chance, you should check the movie out. It's really well done. It's, so it's just a little over two hours, you know, you could do seven hours on the guy and it wouldn't be enough, but, yeah. but it's uh, but it's a nice, it's a nice chunk of, uh, of, of well done documentary. So if you get a chance, you know, you Oh
0: you no, know. I'm, yeah. I'm a documentary junkie. So I will, it will be watched by me. Cool. <laughs> Excellent. Especially now that I've been primed by all this yeah. research.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I think you'll love it. Let me know if you get a chance to see it, you know, just, okay. just, Drop me a text and be like, dude, I, ch- I, I saw it, you know, whatever. Yeah,
0: absolutely. So uh, so give me one good, like, diva Simon LeBond story. <laughs> <laughs> you brought it up that he wasn't so good to work with. You know, oh, my
1: God. I remember, I remember, like, after gigs and stuff, like, if we had any, uh, like, backstage parties or, like, sh- you know, like, uh, I remember just having such a great time at the House of Blues in Chicago. Because there was uh, the a, a big room connected to uh, you know uh, to the to the venue, which was part of the building and part of the House of Blues. So the, every you know all the backstage peoples and you know people from the audience that were lucky enough to get in there, and then everybody was back there. And I'd be like you know I'd connect with a girl and I'd be talking to her and stuff, and like I'd literally be just like in the middle of saying hello, you know, or or, or you know whatever. And, you know, I'm like, you know, we're eye to eye. We're right in front of each other. And Simon would come and walk right in front of me and go, hello, I'm Simon. And I I just remember like looking like this past his shoulder, looking at her going, do you believe that shit? Like, I mean, oh,
0: my God. Yeah. The cock blocker. Full on. (laughs)
1: full on wow
0: you know? whoa okay so it's like that yeah <laughs> i mean come on dude you're simon the bond go you can go have anything yeah i know do you mind if
1: i just have like maybe one, you know, can I just have one?
0: <laughs> wow oh man well this has been awesome talking to you man Oh, I remember dude. that! I remember that I met you the first time I actually played with you. We were playing out the brass elephant.
1: Yes. Uh, with and, the, uh, oh God,
0: yeah. With Bobby dude. Williams, another fellow who's passed away. But um, yeah, I just remember that. I've told the story on a different episode, actually. But uh, I remember the first time I played with you. You the whole first set. We were, it's the first set. There are not many people in the club, and you know you're playing everything, just pretty much pocket stuff at a decent volume. And I was like, "That's cool," but like where's this Joe Travers that I've heard so much about you know and then like the last song I don't even remember what it was but you just opened up and like just you know blew some chops and I was like oh there he is <laughs> I'm like oh it's like that like this dude is badass and uh you're just yeah. an absolutely amazing drummer and I've always had a great time playing with you are you well? I guess we no one's playing anywhere, but you're still doing the Ponchos gig if the clubs yeah, ever open. Yeah. up.
1: Again. at the time that uh, everything kind of grinded to a halt, I was um, I was doing Tuesday nights at the Whiskey a Go-Go with the Ultimate Jam Night. I'm the house drummer for that, All right? And then I'm I was the uh, first call for the Ponchos on Fridays and Saturdays with Eric Dover and Jim Wheeler and uh, Coco Powell yeah. and yeah. sometimes Walter Eno, depending
0: on schedules right who yeah. i'm interviewing on thursday he'll be on not uh, this week okay. but next week
1: i love walter <laughs> he's such a sweetheart and, and another talented cat you know another another amazing musician yeah. um, and uh so that was like the two the two steadies and um and then you know we had a tour the zappa band was supposed to be opening up for king crimson in the summertime and that completely got postponed and mm. you we know, still don't know whether or not or when that's going to be rescheduled you know right hopefully, hopefully it will be but you know you just you just don't have any idea so mm. yeah we're, we're in a holding pattern but yeah it was weird because i was so used to like you know uh, grinding away on the day job and then at night you know going and gigging and and stuff like that and then now it's like almost all of a sudden i've got all this extra time like woo, <laughs> i don't have any extra yeah. money but i've got all this extra time <laughs>
0: <laughs> I know. Yeah, I know. It's crazy. I mean, at first, at first I was really loving it. Cause like I said, I was touring really hardcore. So at first for the first, even two months, I was like, Oh, this break is awesome. But man, like maybe six weeks ago, I just hit a wall of like, I gotta, I gotta get out and I gotta play. I mean, this is the longest in 30 years that I've gone without playing a gig.
1: It's really crazy. I hope that, uh, you know, things will, will obviously change Uh, and I mean, it it might not be changing anytime soon, but I do hope that when it does change that uh, it'll, like we said, people will still be able to appreciate what, you know, we have to offer as live musicians and the industry will kind of come back around and, and people will want to tour again and, you know, and just, and just do music.
0: Yeah. 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 Well, I hope we get to do some music when it all starts up again. And
1: yeah, Yeah, I was going to say, I, re- I was really happy that I had the chance to record that record with, with what is it, Waiting for Monday?
0: Yeah, Waiting for Monday. Yeah, yeah. you guys
1: felt so good, man.
0: Oh, you know, man. Of, that was a fun stuff. record. And then yeah. we did that gig at the Whiskey, and and uh, yeah, yeah, that was really fun. Yeah, I forgot about that too. We do all kinds of stuff together. We just... Don't yeah. even vocally,
1: vocally, that band is really strong. I mean, between you and... Uh, August, August. Yeah. And, and, and Rudy, I mean, it's just like holy shit, man! You guys are just like, woo! Come on, yeah, you know. That's great. <laughs> and,
0: and Walter. Oh, right,
1: yes, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah.
0: It's pretty insane. It's cool. Yeah. Well, hopefully, there'll be there'll be gigs to be had eventually, and we'll do yeah. it all again. You know.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, good luck with all the podcast stuff, and I'm glad you're. You know, you're you're being proactive and keeping busy and interacting with your fellow musicians, and uh, yeah, you know, get, the get, keep keeping things. Uh, happening, you know, just like generating uh, awareness. It's great.
0: Yeah, and showcasing people that I really respect, and and uh, you know, it's good to, like you say, just keep in touch and be able to talk to people because it's so isolating, you know, being out, out here in pandemic land.
1: Yes, but, well, uh, I I appreciate you wanting to have me on.
0: Well, thanks so much for doing it, man. It was great talking to you.
1: Thank you. Die
0: by a star. Flood to the clubs, not flub to the clubs. I don't know. I don't know what I was talking about. Uh, Man, I hope you got a lot out of that. That was so fun. Uh, I loved what he was talking about demo tapes because it's a subject I kind of forget about because now everything's online and um, it's it's a kind of a different world. But I'll try to put my first Los Angeles demo tape on YouTube so you can hear it, uh, just in case anyone's interested. I haven't heard it in years, so I'm not sure if it will even hold up. But uh, y'all listeners can be the judge of that and let me know. It was always an interesting conversation to have amongst musicians about like what form of demo they used to use. Because some people would insist that you need one in like a cassette or a CD and others would insist that you don't and you just sit in and, and have a business card, you know, and there's always a danger of over promoting yourself for sure. But it's also always good to have something just in case to put in somebody's hand, like something that you can just take with you because you get in your car and you throw it there and then maybe even a week later you're like what is this who is this and 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 you come back to it obviously now everything's on the web so it's it's good to have a business card with contact info and links to you know a website or youtube or whatever you you use soundcloud i've also done postcard size stuff which you know sticks out a little bit more and depends on the event that you're you're going to like if you go to nam that's uh, People have bags there anyways, so something a little bigger is, is kind of acceptable. And you don't always have to hand them out either, but you should always have them, so just in case you need to. So, you know, you don't want to overdo it, but it's always good to have in case someone asks. And video right now, obviously, is super vital. So Joe was way ahead of the game, and, and that, that's pretty cool. Uh, the last few gigs I've gotten, they've asked to send links to video as well as audio, so obviously it's, you got to have something. And if you have any innovative ideas on the subject or something that you do different, you know, feel free to reach out and let me know and maybe we can have this discussion on the show again. One other thing I'll say about it too is that it's really grueling and not fun for me, anyways. Like it is the most awful part about getting gigs and stuff is the schmoozing and the meeting people. And I like, I like meeting people, but it's, I don't like forcing myself on to people and and handing them a demo and saying, this is who I am and please give me a gig. It's, 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 it's excruciating. But one of the things that when I first got out here that I would just force myself to do is to just show up Because, you know, around 8 o'clock and I'm starting to think, okay, these are the clubs I need to hit and the people, and I'd be tired and I just wouldn't want to go, but I would just, you know what, just go. Even if you don't shake anybody's hand, just sit at the bar, because you never know what will happen, and and at least you're going to get a good performance. So, uh, anyways, that's my advice, because I know it's grueling and it's awful, and I, I hated it. And now I know what it's like from the other side when people come up to me and hand me demos. And, you know, that's not super fun either. But at the same time, I understand. And, you know, be nice. You know, meeting nice people is always great. And as a bass player, if I'm meeting bass players, I need subs, you know. So it's uh, it's grueling and awful. and, And it is for everybody. But it'll usually pay off. According to the internet, Frank Zappa made 62 albums before he died. And the Zappa Family Trust has released 55 since his death, thanks largely to Joe Travers. Danny Serafin is the original drummer for Chicago. Dweezil Zappa was an MTV VJ for 12 weeks before getting fired for saying some not-so-nice things about MTV on The Howard Stern Show. Razorblade editing is how editing was done before computers and involves the actual cutting and taping back together of reel-to-reel tape. It's incredibly tedious, and like Joe said, there's an art to it. Cutting together things in time is challenging, and there's like no undo button. (laughs) So it takes a massive amount of skill and experience to edit with the precision that it would take to get Frank Zappa's music right. I I can't even imagine. Stems, for those of you that don't know, are submixes of a larger mix that when played together in equal volume will exactly recreate the full mix you might get all the guitars on a stem or background vocals or strings etc nick Rhodes is 58 years old and frank zappa's wife's name is gail and he has four kids dweezil ahmet moon unit and diva and maybe that will take care of some of the names that we talked about on this episode that you may or may not know well i hope you had a good time I'm a a star. wow you've made it to the end I'm hoping it's because you completely enjoyed yourself and are now filled with knowledge and inspiration to move forward with your dreams. If that is the case and you would like to stay informed of new episodes, live events, and general news, please go to divebarrockstar.com and sign up for the mailing list. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, or complaints about anything you hear on the show, please email me at fanmail at divebarrockstar.com and you may even end up on the show. We at the Dive Bar Rockstar Podcast, with all of our hearts, thank you for listening, and remember, it's all about dreams.